Welcome back to 100 PM, the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. This season, we are talking to authors of all your favorite product management books. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Suzanne Abate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Christina Woodkey. Welcome to the 100 PM author series. This season, we are talking to the authors of our favorite product management books, and I'm thrilled to be kicking off our very first episode with Christina Woodkey, design thinker, information architect, <laughs> OKR evangelist, and author of the book Radical Focus. Christina, welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much about myself every time somebody introduces me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and since you've got a long list of credentials, maybe you can introduce yourself to our audience by telling our listeners, what's one thing about you that we probably can't find out on Google? Uh, that's that. Uh, as I said before, um, earlier when we were chatting, I think a lot is on Google because I do tend to live a lot of my life just in public. I don't really worry about it much. Um, but I will say one thing that you might not be able to put together very easily is that I'm a very, very good cook because I take cooking lessons everywhere I go. And I actually went to culinary school for uh, six weeks. Um, when I was trying to figure out how to change my life. So some people know I went to culinary school, but I also went to the Cordon Bleu. I studied in Thailand at Sitka. I've studied in Mexico. Um, I find that getting to know people through their food and their culture is such a satisfying way to do things. And I also like leaning back and letting somebody teach me something for a change. That's, you know, since I teach full time at Stanford, it's kind of nice to relax and just learn. I, that's a delicious update. So you could be a, you could be a, a contender for MasterChef when the next season rolls around and just be one of those uh, experts that show the judges how to get things done in the kitchen. <laughs> I could be, except I've got to say cooking is really hard on the body. So I don't do much professional cooking, but my daughter seems to like my cooking just fine. So I have an appreciative audience. Love that. Love that. Now, Radical Focus is not a new book. Uh, in fact, here at 100 p.m., it's a many times over recommended read from some of our past guests. So all of our guests who are product leaders around the world, we always ask, you know, what are your favorite reads? And over and over again, we hear Christina Woodkey, Radical Focus, Christina <laughs> Woodkey. For our listeners, it is on our reading list at the 100 p.m. website. And so we're talking about it today because after just five years, we're getting a second edition. Yes, um, that's always the question. Is it too soon for a second edition? Is it too late for a second edition? When does the second edition even come out? Um, but since I've been uh, consulting, and I've been cons consulting on and off longer than five years because I started with a blog post much in the way Eric Reef started with Lean Startup, um, I just, you know, I thought I was writing a book for startups. I was like, gosh, startups have a really hard time focusing. There's so many shiny objects, there's so many things they can do. And yet um, they were unable to focus on product market fit and getting there. And so 
um, in between no longer working at Zynga and deciding to teach, um, I was advising a bunch of startups and I was like, well, you know, we used OKRs and Zynga, let's try it. And people would be like, eh, I don't know, methodology is too much. So I kept narrowing it down, making it simpler and simpler. And when I had something that was really helping startups, um, I went ahead and uh, wrote the book and published it. And I did it in a very lean startup way. I wrote a prototype and sold it at South by Southwest and the feedback informed the final book. But after five years, I just kept seeing people do things that were just wrong or maybe wrong's not the right word. The right word would be they were doing things that were not allowing them to meet their goals. And that just was breaking my heart because I wrote this so people could make their goals, right? I've never wanted to be a big fancy consultant. I'm very happy in my teaching job. I'm very happy writing books, but I'm very unhappy when I see people struggling to do the things that they want most out of life. And so I thought, well, let's see, we've evolved so many practices for OKRs for the various companies I've worked with. Maybe it's time to just write all that up. And sometimes I have to admit, I got some stuff really wrong, like cascading. Awesome if you have an eight-person startup, death if you have 800 or more, right? <laughs> well, and I want to dive uh, into a lot of the differences in the new edition because you're right, there are, uh, it's clear that you've been on a reflective journey since the, the first release. But for the benefit of our listeners who maybe haven't actually read the book at all, and because we are product managers here in this audience, what I want to know is what is the kind of customer problem solution uh, construct here? Who is Radical Focus for? What's the problem you were trying to solve with the book? And what's different about your approach uh, as compared with others that are out there? Well, first of all, um, as you know, I said, startups have trouble focusing on the critical work and they get very distracted by opportunities. I'm working with a small startup now that is in the entertainment space and just her head keeps getting turned. Oh, I'm meeting with Lucasfilms. I'm meeting with this person and that person. And you know, they get really excited and it's like, but what's your core? What are you trying to do right here? What does it look like when you hit product market fit? And so in the new book for that, I ended up putting in what I call exploratory OKRs, which means I want something and I'm not sure what it is, but I do know it'll have these results. I do know it'll bring in a certain amount of money. I do know it'll have a certain kind of growth. All those things sort of codified a little more for startups because I think startups, uh, you know what they say, they die of indigestion more often than they die of starvation. I forget whose quote that is, but that's just so right on. They're so busy running after every single shiny object. But then when you look at enterprise, enterprise is huge. And when people ask me, like, what is it like to work at Google? Because I've got friends there or Facebook or, or so on. Any big company is no longer a company. It's no longer a culture. It's a bunch of small city states. And each city state has its own goals, its own profit margin, its own culture. And it's really important to recognize that so that when you um, bring OKRs into an enterprise, you can't do a direct cascade because it just takes too long. It's just too hard and you don't know enough. Um, so you have to start thinking, okay, one OKR per business model, perhaps, or maybe one OKR per product market fit that's already been established. These are the kinds of things that will help you when you're really digging in deep. 
And sometimes a company will come up with an OKR that is good for a huge enterprise company, like join the digital age. That's something that will happen everywhere, right? Or understand what social means to our product. But most of the time it's, it's a little smaller and it's better done at the lower levels. Yeah, and I think one of the things that strikes me, and I mean, I guess this gets to the core of the title too, Radical Focus, you know, a lot of people when they get introduced to OKRs, they sort of, they either get introduced to them sort of through gender, sort of vis-a-vis -vis the Intel legacy or vis-a-vis -vis the Google rollout. And yeah. so people become obsessed with that cascade of the company objective down to the next tier of management, down to the next tier and down to the next tier. And one of the things that I hear you advocating for in the book is like the one OKR to sort of govern it all, <laughs> almost even in front of cascading at all. Like it almost seems like the idea of whether or not to cascade might be somewhat relative to how many other people are we gonna try to pull in behind this? Can you speak to Ab that a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the point of OKRs being so short, well, there's a lot of advantages to that, but one is simply the limitations of human memory. Um, a lot of people have heard of the magic number seven, plus or minus two, but the reality is that if you look at the updates, it's really closer to maybe four or maybe five. So by creating um, a singular OKR set, and remember, OKRs aren't one thing, they're four things, right, or more. They're an objective and three key results. So you have to hold all that in your mind and be able to drag it out and hold it in your working memory while you're doing prioritization. And then maybe it can fall backwards. But it's really important to dig the grooves of memory that will guide you to the OKRs. And by that, you do it by checking in over and over and over again, which is why we have our Mondays, why we have our uh, Friday celebrations, why we have the uh, email status report, which is super lightweight. Um, it's about making sure that every time anybody says, what should I do right now? They have an answer. Well, is it moving an OKR or not? Or is it basically helping our health metrics, which are the things we use to balance the OKRs? Um, so in that case, we really have to focus on keeping it simple. But also, um, I see a lot of weirdness in the way people come up with multiple OKRs. Like they think they only have three key results, so they'll have a second objective, which is unnecessary. You could have one key result. You could have five. I recommend against 16 because then we're starting to push against memory again. That kind of focus forces you also to think longer term. And this is a really weird thing I see when I talk to people is they have a really hard time thinking beyond this quarter. But guess what? You could do something next quarter and you could do something in Q3 and you could do something in Q4 and it's okay. So when you think of these things you want to accomplish and the limited resources you have, sequencing becomes really powerful. So what do we do first? And that'll create the learning to go to the second thing and it'll go to the third thing. And because you're product management folks, you know that doing conversion before retention means you convert people and they leave. Acquisition before conversion, you send a bunch of people there and they leave. So if you can be really thoughtful about your sequencing, you can get a lot of power, plus all those grooves in the brain have been made. And at that point, because retrieval practice um, improves memory. So that means by the end of the year, you've got an entire team good at acquisition, entire team great at conversion, an entire team great at retention. And how powerful is that? 
Yeah. And is, is your recommendation, so I like the point that you make about, guess what, you get to set goals again. You don't, you're only committing to these, if you're a startup, you're only committing to these for the next three months, and then we promise there's going to be more. And if you get to keep having years of runway, you're going to have many, many more kicks at the can on this. And you speak about this in terms of how do you pair it back to make it kind of right-sized or realistic? So let's take as an example, we've got an objective, you know, we want to expand into new markets. And so do we, uh, do we keep that objective throughout and change the key result to make it expand into California, expand into New York in Q2? How would you advise somebody to stay with a big aspiration, but use the OKR methodology to actually make those quarterly goals attainable or, or feel attainable against that? There is a lot of awesome in that question you just asked me. Um, first of all, you might notice it, it includes a strategy. There's an idea there. And one of the things I say is I really recommend against using OKRs until you have a clear strategy. So when I hear the strategy, I hear you talking about all of North America, and then I hear certain spots are more important than others. So there's probably a strategy behind that. The OKR didn't make the strategy. The OKR made sure everybody was pointed at the strategy and knew what it was and knew how to act against it. So if you're moving into San Francisco, yes, and you have some key results about whether or not that's being successful. And from that learning, you might actually do the same key result all over again. Like, let's say you, you know, want to bring your product to San Francisco and you have a revenue number and a customer number and maybe a cold lead number because people get very excited and it's a good uh, quality metric and you didn't hit any of those numbers. Well, then the question is going to be for your, your team, do we try again with San Francisco? Do we move to New York to see if they're different or Chicago, if they're different? Um, what do these numbers mean? And that I think is a lot of the power is again, the learning, the knowledge, growth, um, the ability to become a smarter company all along. So I guess the answer is, do you keep them or change them? And the answer is yes, <laughs> you can keep doing them as much as you need to, or you can change them if that's the appropriate thing to do. Right, right. Well, let, let's tease this apart a little bit more. I'll, I'll borrow something that you say in the preface of the new edition. So first of all, now that OKRs have kind of been in the, we'll call it the common sphere for a little bit of time, they're not hot. It's like they were hot and now they're not hot because you got a lot of people saying, oh, they don't work. We tried that. It doesn't work. It only works for companies like Google. I don't even know if Google can make them work, right? So you're starting to see a little bit of backlash. And you speak to that when you say, you know, on one hand, you thought uh, it was five years too soon for a second edition. And then you said, I fear it's maybe not soon enough. And I like this line. I fear that OKRs may end up in the trash heaps of management fashion. So why do you think people are railing against OKRs actually? I honestly think it's probably because a lot of people have not taken the time to understand what makes the methodology work. And then they're like, okay, well, my boss said we need OKRs and they look a lot like smart. So let's just do that. You know, we don't have time to read. We don't have time to think. And this is another huge problem. I mean, we've seen people writing about like uh, 
how email destroys our function, ability to function, and how being always on is exhausting us. And I think that if you're talking about a change at the scale with the stakes that are at the scale, and we're talking about the stakes of your own company, right? And the stakes that the possibility is that your employees will spit out OKRs, which I have actually had to go work with teams who tried OKRs and it went so badly that basically the employees said, no way, we're not doing this anymore, it's terrible. Um, so my first comment would be like, take a little time to think about your company's culture, what you want from OKRs, are you doing it just because your VC is telling you to do it? And, and how does it work within your culture? Like if you're remote, there's no way you're all gonna gather together on Fridays, but that doesn't mean you just skip the bragging session, right? You still have to get together and say, wow, we're all so awesome. We're all doing amazing things. So how are you going to do that? Are you going to create a Slack channel like some companies have? Are you going to do a series of video conferences like some companies have? Um, you have to figure out how they work for you. You also need to go slow, please do a pilot, pick your highest performing team. And I say highest performing because guess what? OKRs aren't a silver bullet. They're a tool to take good into great. So start with your highest performing team, see if they can make it work. If they can't make it work, your lowest performing team can't. The other thing is if they do make it work and the numbers pop, you know, nothing succeeds like success. Everybody's gonna want a piece of that puzzle, you know, a piece of that cake. And so other people, instead of saying, oh gosh, OKRs are being forced on us, they'll say, yay, I, can I get the pilot? Can I be part of this? And I've seen that helps. Also, high performing teams tend to be made of very smart people. And those very smart people will say, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, at which point you can adapt it and have higher success as you roll it out. Yeah, you, you know, you make this point about silver bullet. And I think there is a close relationship that first we have to say, why are we attempting to adopt OKRs? Is it because my CEO read Christina's book and this is great and then kicked it down several departments to someone to say, go implement this? You know, so I think there's there's kind of a, and has to be a true why behind it, right? I guess my question to you would be, why would OKRs be the right goal setting framework for an organization rather than I read about this and I want to try it? Why would it be right? When is it right? So the first reason is because you're having trouble doing longer term strategic efforts. So if you think of the Eisenhower matrix, um, if it's important and urgent, you do it. You just do it. But the problem is if it's important and not urgent, urgent and unimportant things are loud and noisy and people are yelling, hey, when are you gonna get this done? And you didn't even agree to doing it. So it's really critical to create OKRs to move that out of non-urgent to put a time frame on it. And that's a very simple thing to do, but you have to be careful not to do too many of them because then you don't have the resiliency to adjust to situations like COVID. So that's one reason to have fewer as well. The other reason is alignment. Um, often when you're looking at change management, um, and I always recommend uh, John Cotter's books on change management, they're really lovely. Uh, but one of the things that's hard is getting people to remember we're doing this in a different way and not in an old way. So OKRs can be put in place. And to speak to the old Intel example, it would remind people we're not doing the memory thing anymore. We're really working on the, the chip thing, right? So that's a good place for it. Another good place for it is um, getting people used to measuring, although I honestly, I think 
that might be cart before the horse. Um, some people who have never measured anything really have to start building a metrics muscle within their organization first, and then the OKRs can come out of that. Um, but if you're doing some metrics, but not really evaluating, not really thinking about what's the most important indicators, um, then OKRs can clarify that. The biggest, biggest reason is it's not a goal setting uh, management strategy. It's a goal setting and achieving. It's the cadence. The cadence is everything. It's so much better. You could set the worst OKRs in the world. You could have a KR and the objective and it's just a disaster. But if every week you say, okay, what are we really trying to do here? And have we done it? You're gonna have amazing successes. And I think the cadence is what has made OKR suddenly pop as a really popular choice. And then when people don't get the successes because they aren't running the cadence, because they are doing set and forget, they're disappointed. Marty Kagan gave the preface to the second edition and, and he made the comment about part of what gets missed is that empowered teams. And of course, you know, if you know Marty and his work, he talks a lot about that empowerment. And I, I have to wonder if part of the failing of OKRs is management, certain management realizing they have a lot less control over the how things get done when they lean into this flexible, co-creative, we just want to get to here and you, Christina, get to help us decide and then you help them decide and they're like, I don't like that choice so much. Give me a different choice. Give me the one that was in my head, please. Yes, letting go sucks eggs, but you know, delegation is a survival strategy. I see startup founders hit this all the time. They get some success, they grow and they can't be in charge of everything. They can't make every final decision. And their team is being held back and it's just a disaster area and they're not sleeping and they're texting people at 3 a.m. No, you have got to spend a lot of time hiring extraordinarily well and then trust the people you hire. And that's another thing that makes me crazy. And I, I write about it a little bit in the team that managed itself is we have to slow down and be more thoughtful in our hires. You don't need bodies. You need human beings and human beings that have a brain and you trust, and then you have to let go. And that's hard, but that's why um, to use an old Ronald Reagan line, uh, trust but verify. We trust these people and you can read the weekly status emails and you can read through their logic and you can ask them, oh, can you tell me more about this? But you can't say, don't do that. Um, because the moment you do that, psychologically safe, psychological safety will get damaged and people will become afraid to move without your blessing. And your entire goal needs to be telling people what the outcome is and letting them figure out what that's going to be. And yeah, it's hard. I think it's also been a little damaged by a lot of um, some of the software manufacturers who call themselves OKR software, but they're actually just tracking efforts. And that's project management software. And it's not really doing the job of measuring the results, which is why I never recommend pro, uh, OKR software. I just go, you know, work it out, use Google Docs. And then when you're ready to buy, because you know how OKRs work, you can find something that matches your system. But mostly put it off as long as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah. Simple spreadsheet or, or a four square that you can sketch out for every Monday. And exactly. I love, I always say tools are great accelerators of good process. And where most people make the mistake is they think that the tool is going to supplant the process. But 
and they spend too much time configuring it. How do I configure Jira? It's like, well, I don't know. How do you run your sprints? Yes. And then you could probably answer that question quite easily after. I'm just sort of wanting to do a little roll up as we go here, because I think what we've been talking about all along is what are some of the challenges for adopting OKRs, at least in the startup world? One of the ones that I, I sort of heard you speak to is OKRs are not your strategy. OKRs sort of reflect your strategy. So we could say that as you have to have a strategy or some ideas of what you want to accomplish before you can put the OKR syntax kind of around that. Uh, another one that you speak about in the, the new edition is this idea that product market fit is kind of a barrier to entry for a startup. And then you speak about this um, using OKRs as a more exploratory mechanism rather than a, a more rigid, although it's not a rigid framework, but a more rigid framework for accelerating those goals. And, and that last one that you also call out, to what extent is measuring even part of the organizational fabric and, and that's mindset, but that's also quite literally the instrumentations of measurement. Like, do you have Google Analytics? If not, the idea of assigning some key result that, that traces back to what Google Analytics can, can capture for you is gonna be problematic and that's gonna be a lot of learning at once. And of course, Google Analytics, and there's so many different analytics tools that are out there. Any other big challenges for why adopting OKRs at the startup level, like where, where you would see somebody go wrong aside from those that we've just flagged? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so yes, um, one of the reasons I developed the exploratory OKRs with startups that I was advising was because there's a huge problem that startups hit, which is when do you quit? Sometimes you'll hear a VC saying that startup's kind of long in the tooth, they're heading towards a C round and they haven't, you know, they don't look like they're even anywhere near product market fit, or maybe they think they have product market fit, but the numbers continue to be too low to be interesting or significant. And so the key results in that case allow you to say no, because gosh, entrepreneurs are, are optimists, right? They're like, but next week, but next week. And you can, you know, run a pretty hard, high credit card bill with, with next week, with next week. You know, there'll be a point where the VC is tired of you and they're not going to hop on the next round. They're going to be like, you know, you showed promise, but the market's not there and we're done. And you almost have to be the, the same way, but it's so hard because it's your baby, it's your startup. So by setting the key results that, you think are going to be a strong signal of success. And then you can move into a hypothesis result where instead of we got to build something, we're going to build this um, in the objective field. It's a way of saying, we've got to pivot right now, or maybe we just have to shut down. We're not going to find that product market fit. And Steve Blank talks about this quite a bit, right? He talks about the fact that um, a startup is a temporary organization looking for product market fit. And then once you found it, you're actually a company. Congratulations, you made it. Um, so I like to think of it as numbers tell a story about what your health is and what's next for you. The other thing is that I think figuring out how to create metrics is so important to a startup. Because, um, well, you know this old joke, the vaudeville joke, where somebody's saying, hey, 
Um, I'm looking for my keys and they're on their hands and knees and they're looking for their keys and a cop comes by and like, what's that? What's going on? Oh, I lost my keys. Finally, the cop gets down, helps him, says, hey, why? where did you lose these keys anyway? He's like, over there. Why are you looking here? The light is better. And we see this reflected over and over again with um, the infamous page views, right? Emails instead of, you know, nobody lies with their wallet. So people are like 10,000 people signed up. And it's like their emails are already full of spam. They don't care. They've given up. Um, so you have to start thinking about what's a really good, healthy, strong signal. And when you talk about things like, um, are people happy? Do they actually like our products? Everybody's pointing at NPS. And I think we've got NPS fatigue. I don't know about you, but if I see one of those 10 point scales, I'm like, skip, close, five, I don't care. It's just, I don't want to get involved. I'm tired of it. Sure. All my Instacart drivers get a five, especially in the eras of, of COVID for sure. Yeah, no. And, and uh, one of the, so this comes up a lot, right? Which is you're talking or you're alluding to this idea of where do we even set benchmarks, right? Because I hear this a lot with, with folks that I coach and companies I work with say, how do we set this success metric, especially kind of, you know, if we don't know? And one thing I like to say is, you know, would you bet your grandmother's inheritance on that? You know, <laughs> is that sufficient proof? Because it's got to be worth it enough for you to make the next bet on the organization. And, and you're right. It's these these sort of softer metrics and yeah. Email address full of spam. Yeah. We, can, we can relate for sure. You, you touched on something that I think is also another valuable distinction in the way that you write about it, which is the distinction between health metrics um, or what you know, some people might think of as, as KPIs <laughs> and the key results and, and how they're actually different and both need to be looked at. But I think that that's worth um, hearing you speak about for just a moment, if you could set that up for the listeners. What's the difference? Well, I think of it as push and protect. So the OKR is something you're pushing towards. It's a big thing. It's strategic. You're not sure what's going to happen. Um, but the KPIs or health metrics, as I prefer to call them, are all the things you don't want to destroy as you're trying to uh, achieve this moonshot goal. So if you're really working on a new product, you might want to pay attention to your current customers, right? Because if they are leaving in droves, you're getting, uh, getting the ground pulled out from under you, rug ground anyway. And so um, the health metrics also can be around the team health, because we see this all the time in game studios, um, is that it will just burn people all the way to the ground until they just quit in exhaustion and fury. Or maybe you want to make sure the code health is good. I feel like when I was at MySpace, uh, most of our effort was to keep the whole thing from falling down. This was quite a few years ago, and we were always growing like crazy. But um, but the code was not trustworthy and we really had to move to a new architecture and there never seemed to be time for that. So um, being able to say, guess what? Something's breaking, I've got a code red, all of a sudden our current customers are disappearing. That means you mark the fact that you're focusing on something other than the objective and key result. And that way you know that when you come back at the end of the quarter and you're going, oh man, how did we miss our OKR so badly? Why are we like, you know, 20% there? And the reality is 
guess what? Your software is crashing every five minutes. Perhaps next quarter's OKR should be get decent software. Just, I mean, I'm just making things up off the top of my head. But the reality is that, again, the OKRs, because they measure, because you check in on them so often, they're an amazing learning tool. And learning that the reality is you can't get things done because you've got this deep problem um, is valuable. And even if it's not a deep problem, it's still good to know that you're not losing your customers. That still seems yeah. like a nice thing to know. I love that push and protect and and these counter opposing forces this is also thematic you you speak about this even in creating I like to call it the dimensionality of key results it's like if I could visualize well constructed set of key results you could look at it from all different angles and find a way to hook into them. And you speak specifically of, you almost want two counterpoints of tension in there so that it's like drive revenue, but keep customers. And now you're like, damn, how are we gonna do that? I know how we could drive revenue. We just crank the price up, but all of the people will leave. And, and now it's an interesting Rubik's cube for the folks to have to solve. Yeah, and um, as someone who's been with Wells Fargo since I moved to California, which is a very long time ago, um, the Wells Fargo scandals like hit me a little bit almost personally uh, because I heard that they were setting these horrible numerical goals and saying, make this or you're out of here, you're going to fire people, which is why we should never grade on a curve or, you know, fire all your B players. There's a place for B players in this world. But by asking a ridiculous number, no psychological safety so people could say this is a ridiculous number. Um, <clears throat> suddenly we had all this cheating and lying and it damaged their brand horrifically. Um, and it's even caused me after 20 some more years to change banks. And that's a lot of work when you've been at a bank for a long time, because you know you understand how it works. It's a really hard change to make. So making sure that you have this growth number, but maybe eight customers per account, like Wells Fargo had, but then how do you find a balancing key result that will keep you away from that. And maybe you shouldn't set something that is that ridiculously hard to do if you don't have the psychological safety to make people able to fail and learn and grow and fail and learn and grow. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we could do an entire uh, day's worth of sessions on this topic of psychological safety. I mean, there's so much inside that. That'll, that'll have to be another reason to have you back on the pod, but this tension, you know, you the uh, I guess a good analog for this in the developer world would be velocity, right? And so we want velocity and we want to encourage velocity to, to, to regulate itself and ideally get to a good number, but not if it also comes with a high output of bugs, because that just says that you're moving faster and sloppier, not faster and better. And that's that kind of tension. So we say increase velocity, but deliver tickets that pass. Uh, mm -hmm. through the quality assurance protocol as well. And I think expanding that into these other um, more nuanced terrains, right? Like making customers happier while also mm -hmm. delivering innovation and, and in, a, in a fast way. The other thing that I love and I don't think it ca gets called out enough, but you called it out, especially in this latest edition, is this idea that Sorry, kids, not everyone can be part of the OKR club, which is, which is important, right? Because for these companies, if we go back to the naysayers and the dissenters, 
the dissent is we can't find a way to make it work for all the departments. And I think what you're saying is it, it can't work for all the departments. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of situations where OKRs are not the appropriate choice because it destroys morale, because people should not be banging their head against a goal that can't move. So there's two categories of this. Um, in the new book, I talk about my 4E's product portfolio evaluation tool, which is that if you're in a growing market and you don't have very many um, products in that market, or maybe none, you just want to explore. You can use OKRs to explore. And if you're in a growing market where you're building out market share, you can use OKRs to expand. You know, But then if you're in a situation where the market is flat, you're torturing people if you're asking them to set OKRs. Maybe the market just isn't growing anymore. Maybe it's just not possible anymore. You can do it OKRs for a couple of quarters just to make sure that that's a true statement. But then take your foot off the pedal and let these people, you know, uh, milk that cash cow, so to speak. And then sometimes people are on a dying product and it's just going downhill slowly. And of course, you would love that money, that little bit of money that's slowly going away. But again, you can't ask people to put huge OKRs on it beyond, uh, you know, one quarter just to make sure that we thought, haven't thought of something useful. But again, it's going to have to be really safe for people to fail because you need them to fail if it really is a market you want to get out of. And it always, it's, gosh, it just keeps coming back to making sure you have psychological safety, you have a situation where people can be honest. But the other side of that is service groups. So um, I've noticed over the last five years that service groups go through certain life cycle changes. So let's take a designer engineering group. They often start very small, they're just coding all the time, but then they get to a certain size where they realize they can't stay organized, at which point we have DevOps or design ops, we have this new group. Well, once you have that capacity, um, you can start saying, well, what do we wanna get better at? Do we wanna get better at our design libraries or our code libraries? And then you could choose to have an OKR for a quarter or two or take it off. Um, and there's groups like legal, I'm not sure, like I would only add an OKR to a group like legal or customer service if I felt that they weren't performing at a standard that I was comfortable with, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd probably just let them alone to do their thing. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing in, in that explanation is this idea that like OKRs are there for when you need them. So even in the context of making them work or that sort of binary, they work, they don't work, it's actually saying they work in a context, enjoy them in a context and, and be okay with not using them when the context isn't appropriate. Like you can dust them off the shelf and say, I think we need a couple quarters of OKRs to get back into shape or to, to rally behind this ambition that we've got. Yeah, OKRs aren't a hammer. They might be a screwdriver, but they're definitely a wrench. And sometimes the most basic tool is not you know, something beyond the most basic tool is not what you need. I think if I only had one tool in my house, it would probably be a hammer. But maybe you want a little more. Maybe you want to use screws because they hold things in place better over time or, you know, bolts because you have some heavy lifting to do. Then, you know, bring, yeah, use those OKRs to do that heavy lifting. But I've been a little bit shocked at how few companies know basic management skills. And... I feel like there's a lot we need to do to make sure people understand how to manage other people, 
<laughs> and a lot we need to do helping people understand how to think about strategy and opportunity. And hopefully, because I have such a quirky style, because I tell stories and I tell fables with radical focus and the team that managed itself, some people who fall asleep during that lecture about <laughs> product management or whatnot, hopefully they'll stay awake and read the book and get some of these ideas that will make everything a little better. Yeah, I, I remember when I read the first edition, you know, flying through the first half because it is so digestible. And you're like, hi, I'm halfway through this book and I just got kind of lullabied into, and I, and now I'm appropriately clamoring for the, how do I do it? Which is, which is great. So kudos, it works. Well, you know, uh, um, you, you, I was writing a book about OKRs. It's a book about an acronym. I had to do something. <laughs> <laughs> you have this terminology, pipelines. Mm. And you specifically set up pipelines as a concept distinct from roadmaps. And I think a lot of our listeners as product people hear about roadmaps. I don't know that as many people hear about pipelines or if they do, they might be thinking about them in the more conventional sort of sales pipeline, deal pipeline context. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, thank you for making that connection between sales uh, pipelines, because in a weird way, product pipelines are a little bit similar. You come up with all the things you'd like to do project-wise or product-wise, and then you rate them, you know, and I think anybody who's been through uh, prioritizing JIRA cards or Trello or whatnot is familiar with, you know, how hard is this? How much effort does it have? Um, how much impact is going to have? And then, of course, um, how confident am I? So there's a weird idea that I came across in Drucker's work that I found to be completely true, which is you can learn to predict things, which is amazing if you just practice prediction. So to speak to earlier, like how do we get a benchmark? Sometimes you don't, you just make a guess and then you learn from whether or not it worked. And it's the same one here. So uh, we're gonna guess at effort, we're gonna guess at impact, we're going to guess, we're gonna admit our confidence is low and then we're gonna go through this pipeline and say, okay, well, shall we try this? Is this project going to be something that can move the OKR? Or how about this project? Is this something that could move the OKR? Um, and again, it's moving into a, a much more lean startup mindset where we're really asking ourselves, what hypothesis do we have about our ability to affect this number or the three KR numbers? And then which do we wanna try and how do we do the smallest experiment possible in order to make it move. And with a roadmap, I think there's just too much commitment. And I do say in the book, you may be using language completely different. This is just a definition for the sake of having this conversation about laying out everything we're gonna do for what, a year? My gosh, think of all the crazy things that could happen in a year. Oh wait, we don't have to think of them. They all happened last year. Um, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> so, um, so with a pipeline, you resume a certain amount of flexibility. You're still being very analytical about how you're choosing to spend your time where. Um, and then you need to write down the results. So you learn, so you learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it sounds, a, part of what I'm hearing in the distinction is sometimes roadmaps can fall back to that top-down thinking. So it would go something like this, do this project and get these results. 
Yes. Which is beautiful. I mean, if I could map out all of my businesses that way, well, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. I'd be on the beach somewhere because yep. every project that I said we were going to do would get the results that I said we needed to get and that's it. But actually what you're talking about is there is guessing involved. And so if you lean into that, even at the road mapping level and say, look, even if we're talking about bigger scale initiatives that might span over a quarter or over a year or even a couple of years, what we're really just saying is bigger guesses at what is going to get there. And so I think the way you, you frame pipelines in the book is like, it's like a backlog of bigger initiatives that could in whole or in part equal to a key result or moving the, the needle in some way. Absolutely. And um, if you think about that, it also solves another problem, which is folks like you and me, we like making things, right? We're very solution thinkers. And so with a roadmap, we're going to put down all the things we think are going to work. And when they touch the roadmap, they become true. That's what we're doing. But if you stay in that curiosity mindset where you're like, oh, I wonder if this would work. I wonder if there's something else we could do that would be cheaper or faster or slower. You know, you just have to hold these projects very lightly so that you can constantly be pivoting. The goals don't move, but the approaches do. And I think that's one of the things I do when I talk to folks is they say, oh, well, we're doing the CRM. And, you know, and then I five why them. Like, why are we doing it? Why do you want that? Why does, until we get down to a, a, an actual an actual desire that is we want to make more money by not misplacing our customers, which is a thing that happens, believe it or not. So, um, or else we would have customer relationship management software. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if I am listening in and I have read the first edition, I have dog-eared it, highlighted it, quoted to my friends, but maybe haven't revisited it recently. And now this new edition is going to come out. What's new? What's juicy? What does it address? What's your pitch for why I should go out and, and get the latest copy and, and keep learning from you? Well, um, it's 22,000 words more. So you know there's new, new stuff in there. Um, some of the things that didn't work for enterprises and bigger companies has been crossed out and um, adapted. So it says, if you're a startup, you can do this, but if you're a bigger company, you might want to do this. Uh, connecting with strategic thinking, connecting it, OKRs with um, navigating change. There's just all those questions. Actually, there's a simple way to say this. So at the end of the five years, I wrote my mailing list and I said, I'd love to talk to a few people who struggled with OKRs in their company. I got 250 answers back. I did so many interviews and I put them on mural and I moved the little post-it notes around like a good design thinking person. <laughs> and I saw patterns, people running into the same problems over and over and over again. And to be honest, those patterns were mapped very closely to the problems that I saw in my work. And then I just wrote until I solved the problems uh, based on work that my clients had done. And so the new edition dives deep on those hard questions, like the, all the ones you covered, you know, uh, who shouldn't use OKRs? Uh, what do we do when not everybody can do OKRs? What do we do when we don't have product market fit? What do we do when we have projects that are longer than a quarter? Those are all the common questions. And I made sure that I gave their answers. The only problem is people love the book because it's a little book. 
<laughs> so I promise you, not every answer on earth is answered, but the big ones are. The big Gosh. ones. Uh, does 22,000 words, how many, how much bigger does that make a little book? In, well, in centimeters, did anyone measure on that? Speaking yeah. of important metrics. My designer said, go find a book that's 250 words long-ish and see how you feel about it. And so I did. I went over to my bookshelf and I was like, oh, okay, I'm okay with this. It's still, it's, you can still stick it in your pocket or your purse or your backpack on the way to a flight. And I think you can still read it on the way to Seattle. Although I don't think you can read it uh, on the way to LA anymore. Uh, from San Francisco, from SFO. That's how often how I think about books is how long do I have to fly to finish this book? <laughs> Got it. I love that. Okay. You are an advocate of the outcomes over outputs mindset. So what are the outcomes you hope to achieve with this latest edition? I'm more than anything else. I just don't want to see people using OKRs to beat their people into submission. <laughs> I see too often people setting ridiculous goals because they're trying to get a little more blood out of a stone, so to speak, or they set it for absolutely everything because they want command and control, individual OKRs. I think I'm ready to call it, they don't work. You can do personal OKRs, you for your own self, but no boss can set individual OKRs unless the individual is actually a business unit, so to speak, like an SEO guy, he's the entire department. You might be able to set OKRs for him or maybe not. So I'd really like people to be more thoughtful about their company. I'd like people to spend a little time thinking about the well-being of their human beings, not their human resources. I'd like people to who read it to ask, what do I really want? What actually matters instead of scattering themselves in 20 different directions? Um, and it's gonna be hard to figure out how to measure that, but I love figuring out how to measure things. And I think it might have something to do with some surveys, some visits, and maybe some reviews. I'm gonna be looking for certain keywords. So, well, and I, let me throw a suggestion into the ring. Yay. So one of the things I get asked this a lot in, in classes and workshops, you know, when I teach them, and it always comes back to how do I convince my boss that blah, blah, blah. And I think what I'm hearing you say to all of the potential readers of your book is if you run into management that is using OKRs for the wrong reasons, you, they have your permission to personally email you and <laughs> give their bosses a talking to, to prevent. And so then that could be the metric. Numbers of emails that you have had to intervene with uh, difficult leaders. I may not, I may have may to not, not be put perfect. it out tomorrow. We have to I may have to take it home and rewrite it again. <laughs> but yes, that would work out really well. I already have that. I have so many people emailing me and saying, how do I convince my boss? And I'm like, well, you could throw the book at his head, but I'm not sure that's going to end well. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, show success. But yeah, it, emailing's great. Tweeting is great. I am a little too addicted to Twitter, so I'm always looking for... Um, looking for people who say, I don't know how to do this because then I have a short answer situation. So yeah, I think that'd be great. If I see communication uh, about things that I actually wrote about, I will consider that a failure of communication on my side for sure. All right, we're coming to the end of our time. So I've got just two more questions for you, Christina. The first is we are doing our author series and you are the first guest in this series. So it's so exciting to have you help us kick it off. 
What are some of your favorite product management books or authors? And, and they could be like, maybe they're not even conventional product management books, but you would say, if you're a product manager, you need this. Oh gosh, yeah. I love non-conventional books in particular, so thank you. Um, I would recommend Amy Edmondson's The Fearless Organization. It's all about psychological safety. It's a great read. Um, her first book on teams was invaluable, but it was a little harder going. But Fearless Organization is a delight to read from beginning to end, no filler, and incredibly important because product managers don't do anything by telling people to do it. They do everything through persuasion. Um, there's the classic Influence Without Authority from uh, David Bradfield. Um, there is, of course, Marty Kagan's new book, Empowered. Marty and I have a conversation with our, both our books and our personal conversations um, about how do we create more humane workplaces. And it really is about empowering teams at its very heart. Um, and then there's just, Mind the Product is such a great home for so much knowledge. The, the, the founders have written books that are wonderful. The talks from the conferences, the articles. I mean, I just think it's such a, a grand resource, which I suppose your readers probably have figured out, but um, I can't help but mention it again. Um, and then the Tao of coaching or inner game of uh, tennis or inner game of stress, if you prefer. I've got to say it has taught me so much about talking to people and not telling people things, but letting them come to their own conclusions and teach me and come up with better solutions that I can live with. So there's a simple model called GROW. Um, and if you use the system, it'll be great for your one-on-ones and it will really help you learn to trust your people and your teams. Yeah, I, I love, there's, there's clearly so much value that you place on really, I think like the spiritual aspects of succeeding in, in team constructs, communication and the ability to, to transact that effectively. And again, just creating environments where people can feel uh, able to talk about what's wrong and then actually work towards solutions. So all great recommends and we'll put those up in the show notes for our listeners. Last question, Christina Woodkey. <laughs> what has been your biggest COVID revelation as things are starting to reopen and we're having to maybe adapt again to what has been a, a kind of wild time for us all? Anything that you have learned about yourself, your career, your interests over this uh, period that you would love to share with our listeners as a parting note? I think the biggest learning was Technology is not always the answer. And it has proven true across so many things. Like we shower too often and we have this horrible dry skin. So we have to put moisture on it. Those are both technologies. But if you shower just once a week, um, then your skin becomes amazingly healthy. If you, uh, if you spend all your time on email and teaching classes online and responding to Twitter all the time, you end up being worn through a little bit. I became very weary. It's fake socialization and it's fake work. And I realized I really had to make my screen time a lot less, which meant I had to figure out what to do. And I live in a little condo. So what I had to do was leave the condo safely, but go out into nature. And guess what? Nature is awesome and it's healing and it's wonderful. 
And all these kids have been playing outside because their parents couldn't stand being cooped up with them while they were trying to work, but the kids are doing better. And so I think when we leave COVID, I think we have to ask ourselves, how many things are we doing just because somebody's told us to do it, just because somebody said, it's better if you use this shampoo or the skin wash or this moisturizer or this website or this product management tool or this project management software. I just wanna ask, maybe it's just okay to use a piece of paper and put it on the wall. Maybe it's okay just to take a walk, that's all. Beautiful. We love that. Christina, thank you so much for being part of our show. Congratulations on the book. We'll make sure that all of the listeners have links for where they can find it and best of luck to you in the coming weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.